Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia-focused, meaning that we are going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law, but occasionally we will get into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening. And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right, now to the studio. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And this is the Good Judgment Podcast. Folks, we are going to further show you that we do listen to your comments. Um, One of our colleagues asked that if we would discuss Allen charges. Well, we're going to sort of combine that with situations where you might declare a mistrial in a criminal case and Allen charges, and we are going to let this podcast deal with exactly that. So I know y'all are surprised, but occasionally we actually do some research in advance of these episodes. Shocking. And I was preparing this on last Wednesday. I got a phone call at, you know, a little before five from two really awesome lawyers in the Metro, and they said, hey, we got a problem. We need to ask you a question. I think I may have to grant a mistrial. Let me tell you what happened. Well, literally, this was open in front of me, which is just an absolute God thing, because I would not have, I would have sort of panicked had I not. You said it was lawyers. It was actually two judges, right? Yeah, two judges. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Two judges. Two really good judges, actually. And um, we got to talk through their mistrial issue. But but I guess the point is, we really do reach out to each other, uh, all of us. And and if we can ever be that to, to, to be of any assistance to you. You know, sending us an email at goodjudgepod at gmail dot com. Yeah, that's probably going to be a little slow on the on the reaction time, but we're happy to do it, and and it's something that that not because we know everything, but just because we might have access to a body of information. All right, well, let's talk about mistrials, Wade. God, I hate mistrials. Everybody hates mistrials. So when you are discussing a mistrial, there's one overarching point that you have to remember. And that is go slowly. Yes. Don't hurry. When somebody says the word mistrial, it should be a red flag to you that we need to slow down the process. That's right. Remember, the overarching issue is if you ever grant a mistrial and you shouldn't have, that's going to potentially and probably bar a retrial of that defendant forever. Double jeopardy issue. So you've got to make sure that you know what you're doing and that there was a manifest necessity for doing so. Now, to be fair, if the defendant consents to the granting of the mistrial, the issue of manifest necessity really sort of goes away because a consent from both parties is a consent just like any other consent. That's right. But let me back up and say one thing, Wade. Okay. When somebody says the word mistrial as a judge, what should you immediately do? Slow down. Get the jury out of the room. Absolutely. Yeah, please don't talk about this in front of the jury. <laughs> I've I'm, seen it happen. It, it, and, and I would really almost sort of admonish the lawyers, if you need to make a motion for, new, for mistrial, let's get the jury out of the room before you say the word. Exactly. And usually I will see somebody stand up and say, Your Honor, and I will say, ladies and gentlemen, why don't you all step out for a minute? Because I heard it coming. I saw it coming. Absolutely. Sometimes I don't, but sometimes I do. Better safe than sorry. Absolutely. So going back, uh, let's talk about uh, when you should grant a mistrial, Wade. Well, I think they usually occur in sort of two broad situations. One, where the jury is deadlocked. 
And the other is when something happens during the trial that just simply cannot be fixed or the bell can't be unrung, as they say. We call it a manifest necessity. And but it's and, and it's also a manifest necessity where the jury's deadlocked. But to be fair, those are sort of the two places we're going to talk about them, at least here on this podcast. So let's talk about a deadlocked jury for a minute. Do you have a record for the shortest amount of time the jury has said that they're deadlocked? <laughs> I think it was 30 minutes. Yeah, I mean, they, they on, a, on like a five day trial. Yeah, they go, well, we've talked about it once and we're deadlocked. So what? So what you want to do now? <laughs> yeah. And uh, can we go home? Yeah, yeah, we're done with this. Um, look, just because a jury claims they're deadlocked, that doesn't mean that 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 that, that really has any legal implication other than maybe you now to need to make some inquiries. It's pretty common that the first time you tell me you're deadlocked, unless it's been a super long time, I'm just going to simply tell you to continue to deliberate. You the same? Yeah. In fact, what I generally will tell the lawyers I want to do when the jury sends out that first note is say, you know, do you mind if I just bring them back in here and reread the instruction about reaching a, you know, reaching a verdict, listen to the other's opinions and, you know, don't be afraid to change an opinion if you believe that it's wrong. If you become convinced it's wrong. Yeah. So the judge has a lot of discretion whether to grant a mistrial but that discretion is not unbridled and it says that the the cases say that the the exercise of that discretion to declare a mistrial requires the court to take certain steps before that mistrial is declared now to be fair there is not a mechanical list there's not three issues or four issues or seven issues or like we used to have to do with the Batson thing we've talked right. about that that there are th- you know you have to do this this and then this it's not like that They're but just, there are some things you got to do yeah and what you do is look at your particular circumstances and why you think they might be deadlocked or what you think might be going on back there and and you can you can do some things you can you can make some inquiries and one of those things you might think about is um just just asking the jury whether additional time for deliberation might be helpful to them you can consider whether the jury is so exhausted that the minority whoever is in the minority hopefully you don't know that by then uh, might be induced to vote for a verdict just to be paroled just to get released from jury duty (laughs) right um you should also consider the length and complexity of the trial and the uh, length of the deliberations now in doing that another thing to remember is or a couple of things to remember is number one you should be keeping track of how long the jury's been deliberating my trial outline that i use and wage trial outline that he uses actually has blanks where you wrote beginning of deliberations any breaks that were taken for the night or the day or whatever um and then you know when they tell you that they're uh, deadlocked your court reporter may keep up with that um it's pretty common though when you think about it you thought it was going to be a short deliberation and it's gone on and and you, if you were given a million dollars you would say I think it was around 10 they went out because you didn't think that you would be at this that long. You didn't think you'd need to know that. Well, when we get into mistrial because of of deadlock, you're going to need to sort of document how long they have been deliberating. Remember, under the I don't know if I should like make this a poster and said, you know, under Tane Kell said, Tane Kell said, appellate courts can't see into your courtroom. Right. They don't know how long it's been. No. And so, yeah, you you need to make a record by saying the jury's only been out for an hour or the jury has now been. And I I usually do that when I'm meeting with with the lawyers, when the jury tells me they're deadlocked, I will say the jury's now been deliberating for 30 minutes and they've said they're deadlocked. You know. So it is appropriate when you get into a deadlock situation to for the judge to make one of two choices to either poll the jurors individually or as a group 
during that poll, the judge could ask the jury to advise how close they are to an agreement. You can't ask for the numeric split, but what you should not ask is the numeric split of who's voting guilty and who's voting not guilty on each count. So, Tame, what did you do that time you and I talked about it that you got a without an unsolicited note from the foreperson that said, Judge, we are 11 to 2 to convict this defendant on count three, all the counts, you know, whatever. What do you do with that note? Oh, sorry, 11 to 1. I just, I just pulled a Tame kill. Math thing, man. Yeah, I just yeah, pulled a, a math you. thing. Yeah. Um, so, the requirement is, and I did have this happen, I've had it happen twice now, unsolicited. The jury sent me the splits, guilty, not guilty on each count. Didn't ask for it, don't know why they sent it. They just sent out a little note and had a little a little chart that said what it was. Um, you are required to share that with the parties. Any uh, note, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't, if the, if the jury asked me if they can go to lunch, I share that note with the lawyers. I think it's, quite frankly, because it's important. It's information they need to know. The jury's tired and wants to eat. Just out of just so this is an aside, really, but that where should that note go? In the record, I make it a court exhibit, and we always make it a part of the record, and I always discuss it with the attorneys, even if it's the most trivial matter. So while there are no mechanical steps, it's clear that just because a jury says they're deadlocked, you cannot declare a mistrial. And and I'll be honest with you, even if the parties agree that you should declare a mistrial, don't declare that mistrial. Do some of these other things just to make sure that the record is protected. So once you make the record, then you put, if there was something that is nonverbal, again, under the Tane Kell rule of the appellate court can't see in your courtroom, if there's something nonverbal and you see in the jury's faces or their attitudes or whatever, put that on the record. Yeah, absolutely. If you, if you see there's some animosity there or some anger or they look tired or any of those kinds of things, it's, it's, it's fine to put that on the record and make that part of the record. It is very important that the trial judge consider alternative remedies before they declare a mistrial. Now, frankly, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more in a minute, I always ask the parties, what do you think I should do? Yeah. Do you do the same? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and, and (laughs) let's, let's be realistic here. As judges, it's 9.30 on a Friday night, and you've got a, a huge calendar starting on Monday morning, and your kid's playing in the state baseball championship on Saturday morning, and the last thing you want to do is bring this jury back Saturday morning or Monday morning or any of that. The temptation may be there for you to say, okay, this jury's deadlocked. It's 9.30 Friday night. Let's all go home. I'm declaring a mistrial. But stop <laughs> and think, is there something else we can do? Can we bring them back Tuesday? Can we, you know, can we do some other things? And as Wade said, talk to the parties about that. Get their input. You know, it's not uncommon for you to think you have all the answers or you're supposed to have all the answers. And all of a sudden somebody comes up with a really, really good idea. Shockingly, not from your brain, but from their brain. Just make sure that you engage them and, and ask them. Now, once you get down to that point, there is no requirement that you make specific findings of manifest necessity. You don't have to use those words, but I'm telling you now, if you cannot articulate it by looking at this record, that there was a manifest necessity, there's a very real chance this defendant will be barred from ever being retried. So Wade, let's talk about a few of those kinds of things that happen during trial 
that have been determined by courts to be okay to declare a mistrial, the things that essentially can't be fixed. So we're moving now from the deadlock jury to the stuff that can't be fixed. And, and right. you know, literally, Tane, that list is that list is infinite. Yeah, it really is. Because, yeah. I mean, you know, you go from illnesses of lawyers to witnesses having babies that were under subpoena to um, – something that somebody testified that, that you can't unring a bell and you think it's so prejudicial. I mean, you don't always have to grant a mistrial in those situations. So don't, don't write that down in, 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 in ink, but just know that we're talking about those kind of things, not a deadlock jury. Now. That's right. So if one of those things occur, start off by considering, is this, is this an important matter? Is this central to this case? Or is this just a passing reference to something that I can give a curative instruction and I feel like the jury will listen to me? Secondly, consider where that, whether that, con, that curative constru, instruction would be sufficient to really cure that thing. And it says, some of the cases say that whenever inadmissible evidence is introduced or otherwise comes to the attention of the jury, and curative instructions cannot free the jury's mind of prejudice, then it's not error for the judge to declare a mistrial. But if it can, give it a shot. Right, right. And, and you know, there have been sometimes things that I thought couldn't be cured where the parties, quite frankly, didn't want me to declare a mistrial and just said, Judge, if you'll just give a curative instruction, we're satisfied. You've even, I think we've talked about some where, where they don't even want a curative instruction. They don't want you to underline it again. That frequently happens. They don't want you to ring the bell a second time by saying, hey, disregard what we just told you. Yeah, d- disregard the statement about the defendant previously being arrested or, you know, whatever, <laughs> right. because there's a chance that it blew by you because you all were half asleep anyway. Right. Um, what happens, Wade, when there's a consent by one side? See, or the that's other? the beautiful part of this whole thing. You, the reason we, we are begging you to always get the party's input is because if they consent to the granting or not granting of a mistrial, that consent is binding. They cannot induce error, essentially, and then appeal that you should have done something that they ask you not to do. And the one exception to that is if the mistrial was caused by bad faith in order to try to induce a mistrial. And it's usually by a prosecutor because right. this is always usually a, 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 a right of the defendant we're worried about here. You can't, you can't say, well, the defendant requested a mistrial, so he's consented to the mistrial. Well, no, not if you intentionally argue things you knew weren't in evidence or you tried to introduce evidence that had been, had been ruled inadmissible at a, at a pretrial motion or whatever. You can't goad the defendant into ask, asking for a mistrial and then wave the consent flag. Right. I mean, that's just – and I think, I think it's all obvious, but now the defendant's consent, interestingly, can be expressed or implied. Right. So if you say, I'm going to grant a mistrial and the defendant, defense counsel says, thank you, judge. Or if you say, I can't think of any alternatives that would unring this bell. Counsel, do you have any suggestions? No, judge, we don't have any suggestions. Well, then I feel like I'm constrained to grant a mistrial in this case and they don't object to that. That's a that's an implied consent. consent. And then when that happens, that's going to let the defendant be retried on a future date. Now, we have in our list a zillion things that have been cases where a mistrial was declared and either retrial was allowed or retrial was barred. To be honest with you, there are very few where the appellate courts have just barred the retrial. And I guess let's just take those couple of things that say where the retrial was barred because there's limitless things where it was allowed. 
In the Meadows case in 2018, the bailiff came to the court four times and said, Judge, I'm about to have to go in that jury room. I, I think these people might be about ready to kill each other. It's very contentious in there. And that was sort of the piece to this where the judge said, okay, jury said it was deadlocked and now it's super contentious. I'm granting a mistrial over the defendant's objection because it's contentious. The court said, nope, retrial is barred. And why was that, Wade? Mainly because they didn't ask. Well, part of it was because it was a three-hour deliberation on a four-day trial. <laughs> but the judge didn't take any additional steps, bring the jury in, poll them, see if they felt unsafe, break until after lunch, give people... Those alternatives that yeah. we talked about a few minutes ago. There's a bunch of them. And then there was another case in which the retrial was barred, and that's the Julian case from 2013. And a witness for the state wouldn't come to court. Normally you would think, okay, well, that might be a grounds for continuance. Probably would have been, except they let the jury be sworn then realized that the witness wouldn't come. And so they said, Judge, we need a mistrial because our state's witness won't come from California. One problem, Tane. What was the problem? He the, wasn't under subpoena. He wasn't under subpoena by them, yeah. He was under subpoena by the other side. Yeah, and so he's like, I'm not coming. And they go, no, no, seriously, come. No, I'm not coming. Can you testify by Skype? Defense objects to that. So all of those things happen, and out of, out of the end result of that, the, the, the appellate court said, you know what, State? You're going to get a lot of deference if you have somebody under subpoena and they don't come and you can't find them. But when you don't have somebody under a valid subpoena and you haven't even initiated this whole interstate subpoena deal, right? nah. That you're you are that retrial is going to be disbarred because remember, underneath all of this, there is a thing that says a defendant is entitled to be tried by the jury he picked, and and if if that's not going to happen, there has to be a manifest necessity, in other words, in other to, in order, excuse me, to make that happen. So let's talk about one that could happen in almost any of our courtrooms at any point in time, and that is defendant is in custody during trial, and the jury accidentally walks in and sees a dozen guards standing around him or sees him in shackles or something along those lines. What, what happens in that case, Wade? You know, there are a lot of people who say, oh my gosh, you saw my client in custody, therefore, because we, we strive really hard not to do that. Yeah, we do. And they say, well, now that, now that that's happened, I must have a mistrial. You can't get past it. And the cases say, no, no, that's not an automatic mistrial. In fact, it's left to the sound discretion of the trial court, but there's a, there are more cases that say a mistrial is not required than, than ever has said that there is. And, and, and here's the thought process. The evidence is going to come out that the defendant was arrested. That's all that the jury sort of really – that's not going to be shocking to the jury that he was charged with a crime. They've been, they're going to be charged over and over again that the evidence at trial is very different than the evidence at warrant, and therefore that's not something where a mistrial is automatic. And, and I also think that the reality of those cases is that the court knows that it's kind of a wink and a nudge that – hey, this defendant's not in custody. Look, he's wearing street clothes. I mean, they know that jurors understand to a certain extent how those things work. You know, I hate to go off off topic here. No, given you how don't. Long, but let me ask you this. When the defendant wants to take the stand and some huge deputy dude wants to walk with him but didn't walk with the, all the, the witnesses called by the state, mm -hmm. do you think about that? 
Like how that appears in front of a jury? I do. Um, Normally the way we handle that is when the defendant says he wants to testify, I go ahead and have him on the witness stand when the jury comes back out of the room. And there may or may not be a discreet deputy sitting right next to him in a chair. Uh, The way my courtroom is set up, the deputy can kind of sit in a place that it's not too obvious that he just suddenly appeared right next to the defendant. You know, we have never, ever talked about that, have we? No, we never have. I do exactly the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's That's really bizarre how that works. All right. Great minds. Well, or sick minds. So (laughs) let's turn to Allen charges real quick, because Allen charge usually comes up. What's the Allen charge? Wait, I've never heard of that. (laughs) I know, right? What do they call that? The log jam charge, the dynamite charge. Oh, the log jam charge. Okay, now I know what you're talking about. You know, we, we tell our new judges, please don't get lost in all this lingo. You're not only it's only not only the cool kids that know the lingo. Don't do that. And if you don't, if you might know it by something else, another name, don't say, oh, I don't know what an Allen charge is. Anyway, long story short, Allen charge usually comes up when the jury is claiming they're deadlocked, right? And you actually believe they might be. So the primary issue with an Allen charge is whether or not the charge as given is unduly coercive. Now, Tane. You and I practice in a prior lifetime, especially, and then we're getting older and older and older. Right. There were a whole line of Allen cases that were upheld on appeal that if they were given now, they would absolutely be grotesquely illegal. You agree? I do agree. So you can't just look at an old case and say, well, the court said this one was fine. Yeah. Well, they didn't overturn it in another case because there became this, this this realization, oh, my God, I can't believe we got away with that. Let's stop doing that. <laughs> so they didn't overturn it. But there's an easy solution for this, Wade. One Use point, the pattern charge as, at 1.707.70. Exactly. The, the, the pattern charge has been approved repeatedly. It has removed all of those offensive language, all that offensive language, constitutionally offensive, not actually like humanly offensive. And so please, if you're going to give an Allen charge, if, if, if you're going to give an Allen charge, use the pattern charge. You agree? I do agree. It, it, we've included them in our materials. There are some cases that are almost funny of statements that have been made by judges that you simply should not make before giving a a logjam dynamite or Allen charge, as you want to call it. Um, and we won't go over all of those, but suffice to say that you shouldn't tell juries things like if you don't decide this case by four o'clock i'm going to declare a mistrial because i've got places to be or somebody's appears to be a little stubborn yes somebody's not being somebody's being unreasonable i mean come on at some point you go ooh, judge really <laughs> might have overstepped yeah that wasn't good so when you decide you need to 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 give an allen charge really the only question is this when to give the charge and whether to give the charge in other words when that issue comes up you need to say have they been deliberating long enough that i feel like an allen charge is warranted that's the when and then i guess the weather the when is when is long enough and every case is going to be different the I, length of time of deliberations is not always going to be determinative but it's important. And I will say this to you, too. Nothing is really lost by letting the jury stay in the jury room a bit longer. I mean, really. Judges are the ones, I think, who frequently are the ones to too quickly pull the trigger on giving an Allen charge or declaring a mistrial. I mean, if nobody's screaming at one another, if it doesn't seem like it's dangerous or coercive, or if it doesn't seem like you're just 
you know, inexplicably wasting time, let them stay in there a little bit longer. And there are a couple of things you can also do, and we didn't talk about this before, but you might just take a break for an hour and let them go walk around outside. You might break for the night and come back the next morning. I've seen magical things happen when, when that occurs. Or the other thing I found that's super effective, send them in a dinner menu. So the, some of this crazy older language is in our outline. You can read some of it's just funny, but, but some of it is there's, there's a couple things that I think that a lot of us who have been practicing just for a minute have heard that actually has ultimately been ruled to be improper. Number one is this case must be decided by some jury. There's no reason to think that a better qualified jury than you would ever be sworn. That's, that's not appropriate because a case actually could end in a mistrial. I mean, that, that is an ending. And then secondly, additional expense to the county. Guys, we just can never have a conversation where the expense to the county is relevant to whether somebody's guilty or innocent and going to be potentially punished. That just can't be an issue. But the last one's my favorite, where the judge says, I feel like there's enough evidence for you to reach a verdict on one way or another. (laughs) I mean, do you think that might be a comment on the evidence? It just might. Maybe. So there was something in the Daniels book, as we're wrapping this up, that I had never heard of before. Uh, so the same way that some people didn't know what an Allen charge is, I never heard of a time fuse charge. And you men- made a mention uh, reference to it a while ago where the judge said, tells the jury they have until X time to, re- to reach a verdict or the court intends to grant a mistrial. I think all of us would probably go, you can't do that. I, I don't think there's going to uh, – hopefully there's not a lot of us that, that think that you could do that. But the thing that I wanted to bring to your attention, think about how you phrase things when you ask the jury, would y'all like to break tonight and come back tomorrow? Or do you want to go to lunch and then come back? Or do you want to continue through through lunch? Or do you want me to get you lunch or whatever? Think about whether someone reading that could find that to be coercive. I think it's absolutely fine. Would you like to continue to deliberate tonight or come back tomorrow? I think it's fine. Right. You agree? I absolutely agree. And, but, quite a, and, and quite frankly, I think that's a good thing to do. Yeah. But, and, you know, sort of draw everybody's attention. Do you want to wrap up tonight? You want to come back tomorrow? But then stop. Don't give or, 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 or I might declare a mistrial. So, folks, that's our discussion of mistrials and Allen charges. I hope that it is helpful to you or at least points you to spot some issues that you might find valuable. This is Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you, folks, for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This podcast was originally the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Special thanks to the University of Georgia College of Law and specifically Jim Henneberger uh, for their technical assistance and providing the studio for us. Thanks, as always, to Stephen Turner and Turner Up Media, who does his best to get as much of our stupidity as he can. But he can't get it all. We are eternally grateful to CSCJ, the Council of Superior Court Judges, for allowing us to handle NJO and their support in this project. Folks, these are our own opinions. They represent the opinions of Wade Padgett and Tane Kell and do not reflect the opinions of the Council of Superior Court Judges, UGA College of Law, ICJE, or really anybody else for that matter. 
You can contact us on our website at goodjudgepod.com, or you can contact us on email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Folks, please rate and review our podcast on whatever listening app you may be using. It'll go a long way to help others find the podcast. So, Tane, I guess we better bang the gavel on this one. Anything else you feel like we need to say? No, that's all, Wade. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.